The pursuit of happiness. It's not just about feeling good emotions, but the right emotions. The key might just be juxtaposition. Tune in for more only here on the People Scientist Podcast. Scientist, the podcast dedicated to helping us optimize our health with the latest scientific findings on neuroscience, physiology, and nutrition. I, your host, Dr. Stephanie Caligiuri, a nutritionist, physiologist, and neuroscientist, will be here with you every single week, bringing us information to ignite our thinking to help us be one step closer to the healthiest we can be. Hello, my People Scientist Army, and welcome back to the People Scientist Podcast for episode 127, where I aim to arm us with some scientific information so that we can all become a little bit smarter and a little bit healthier with every new episode. Thank you for letting me take last week off for Memorial Day long weekend. Usually, I work on the podcast over the weekends, so it was nice to take a break and enjoy some time outdoors with my friends. So how are you doing today? How is your weekend or your weekday going? Thank you for sharing your time with me, and I hope that I can provide some useful and insightful information for you today. So what is our podcast topic for today? In my own personal life, I have been intrigued by this concept of emotional juxtaposition, embracing the hardships in order to appreciate the positive moments in our life. Do we need the hardships in our life to truly be happy? Do we need that juxtaposition? In other words, that contrast, the opposition of the downs from the ups. Can we view our hardships in a particular way in order to increase our happiness? What happens to our brain, to our neurobiology when we go through a hardship and when we approach that hardship either negatively or positively? Let's find out. But before we do, let's start off with our foregone fact where I share an interesting fact from long ago. Back in 1958, the psychologist James McConnell wrote, quote, Seldom has anything in psychology caused such an immediate and widespread stir as the recent claim that the presentation of certain stimuli below the level of conscious awareness can influence people's behavior in a significant way, end quote. In other words, McConnell was referring to how in the 1950s, the public became aware of subliminal messages, meaning cues that we do not perceive consciously that may influence our behavior. The public was in uproar as this made people fear that companies, organizations, or even the government had the potential ability to alter our thoughts and behavior without our awareness. This uproar all started back in the 1950s when a movie theater used advertisements to motivate the viewers to go and purchase popcorn and Coca-Cola products. Venable in the Journal of the National Medical Association in 1959 wrote of the event where the movie theater flashed the words, eat popcorn and drink Coca-Cola on the screen during the movie. 
but they flash these words during the movie in such short duration, specifically at one three thousandth of a second, that was faster than anyone could consciously be aware of. Now, the movie theater reported that as a result of this subliminal messaging during the movie, that there was an increase in popcorn sales by 50% and an increase in Coca-Cola sales by 18%. Now, to this day, many psychologists do not believe that subliminal messaging can actually influence human behavior in a significant way, while others believe if the action is realistic, it could be influential. Like, go buy popcorn at a movie theater is an easy task to motivate someone to do given the context of the situation. But a subliminal message a message saying, go buy a truck, when you don't need or can't afford a vehicle, well, that's unlikely to influence behavior. So this uproar from the public against subliminal messaging brought about awareness and inclusion of laws against devious advertising. Many countries today have laws against deceptive advertising. And so in theory, advertisements should not include hidden messages or subliminal messages of this type. I think this topic would be fascinating to uncover in a podcast episode unto itself. But what do you think? Do you think that words flashing quickly in a commercial could influence your behavior? Now let's get into the core takeaways of today's topic on how the pursuit of happiness lies in juxtaposition and tapping into our hardships. Scientists have realized that happiness is not just about feeling the good emotions, but feeling the right emotions, whether they be good or bad. Our global population in the last couple of years has collectively felt a lot of emotion with the world events. And in this episode, I theorized the psychology behind this. There have been theories around the pursuit of happiness since the time of Aristotle and even before Aristotle. For example, it has been theorized that for us to have a happy life, we need to experience pleasure, have security, and to have a life with meaning and purpose. But there has to be more to the pursuit of happiness than this, right? In today's episode, I talk about a new aspect in the pursuit of happiness, and that is psychological richness, meaning a life of different experiences, both good and bad, that these experiences result in having our perspectives changed to tap into those difficult, challenging moments, to reflect upon them, learn from them, to give us a juxtaposition in life, meaning a contrast to the pleasurable, meaningful moments. So the pursuit of happiness is not just about pleasure and purpose, but it is also about perspective and contrast. I also talk about neuroimaging studies of individuals with more psychologically rich lives and how happiness is not necessarily about what feels good, but what feels right in the moment. And sometimes feeling the negative emotions is needed. The key to happiness could be juxtaposition. Now let's get into those scientific details. In 2017, Tamir and colleagues shared in the Journal of Experimental Psychology a very interesting study. The scientists queried what emotional experiences we should pursue in order to find happiness. So the scientists recruited a group of 2,324 individuals across eight different countries. These countries included the United States, Brazil, China, Germany, Ghana, Israel, Poland, and Singapore. Now this inclusion of multiple countries is a great strength to this study, 
as what the citizens of the United States define as happiness could be very different from citizens in other parts of the world. And often studies include individuals from only one city or one country. So this was a cool aspect to the trial. Now, the scientists had the participants fill out questionnaires in regard to their desired emotions that they wanted to feel and what they actually felt on a regular basis. They also filled out questionnaires on their indices of mental well-being, their life satisfaction, and symptoms of depression. Now, as we would expect, a common theme in the participants' responses included people wanting more pleasant feelings, like they wanted to feel relaxed, calm, to have relief, to experience love, trust, affection, interest, excitement, and passion. People in general desired unpleasant feelings less, such as hatred, hostility, and anger. But what was super interesting about this study is that within this population, people desired the opposite to what we might think. About 10% of people wanted to feel the quote-unquote negative emotions more, like they wanted to feel anger and hostility more than they currently did. Some people wanted to feel pleasant emotions like love and excitement less than they currently did. What the scientists noted is that if there was a discrepancy between what someone desired to feel and what they actually felt, then they ranked higher for symptoms of depression, low life satisfaction, and unhappiness. This was true for individuals who experienced more unpleasant emotions than they wanted, but also in those who experienced emotions that would normally be labeled as pleasant. So in contrast, smaller absolute discrepancies between experienced and desired emotions predicted greater life satisfaction for all emotional categories, meaning that if people stated that they felt emotions they wanted to feel, then they were happier, whether those emotions were the typical positive or unpleasant emotions. If there was a gap between what they wanted to feel and what they actually felt, then their life satisfaction, their happiness was lower. Importantly, these emotions that people wanted to feel were not always the typical positive emotions. Sometimes people wanted to feel more anger, more jealousy, and sometimes people wanted to feel less love and less empathy. So what feels right to everyone will differ. For example, some people enjoy watching sad or scary movies because they want to feel sadness and fear in a safe space, while others dislike these type of movies and they don't want to feel those emotions. So what feels right is a very personal and unique experience for everyone. What is common among most found in this study is that people do want to feel some contrast, that they want to feel difference in their emotions. They don't want to feel all good emotions or all bad emotions, but a mix of both. For Aristotle, happiness entailed feeling the right feelings. What feels right, though, can differ across people and situations. Happier people, Aristotle argued, are those who feel what they consider the right feelings given their unique circumstance. And the scientist data support Aristotle's work that happier people are those who more frequently experience the emotions they want to experience, whether those emotions are pleasant, like love and excitement, or unpleasant, like anger and hatred. So the secret to happiness then may involve not only feeling good, but feeling right. So why would we want to feel negative emotions? Well, according to this work, we want to feel an emotion simply because it seems appropriate and right. For example, it feels right to be sad when someone passes away in our life. It is cathartic to cry and grieve. 
It might feel right to be angry or sad when a tragedy in the world happens. So for example, during the pandemic, there were many world events that evoked a lot of emotion in people across the world. It seems that during the pandemic, the world became more emotional than usual. Even in the foregone fact that I shared at the beginning of the episode, people collectively were outraged by the subliminal messages back in the 1950s. An outrage about certain events and situations occurred around the world in the last two years as well. Why collectively did this seem more prevalent in the last two years? Because tragedies have existed in our world always. Well, it could be for many reasons, but I believe in part that these heightened emotions over the last two years were because we as a global population craved happiness. We wanted to feel something. And in our ability to feel a strong emotion to such tragic world events, it felt right. It felt right and good to be angry. It felt right to be a part of something more than just ourselves. So I think we need to reframe our thinking that happiness is not just about feeling the good, pleasant emotions. It is about feeling the right emotions for that given situation. Then if we believe that, then what has happened in our world in the last two years makes sense in some way, doesn't it? We might also want to feel quote-unquote negative emotions in the context of a safe space. For example, if we go back to episode 105, the neuroscience of jealousy, this emotion of jealousy is commonly thought of as a negative or unpleasant emotion because secondary to that initial feeling of jealousy, we are likely to also feel anger, sadness, or aggression. But in episode 105, I speak of how jealousy can also be a positive emotion and that it can motivate us to be better. For example, if we are jealous of a new coworker who happens to be better at a technique or skill than us, that can fuel us to try to improve ourselves to secure our position at work. You see, these quote-unquote negative or unpleasant emotions are not always necessarily negative, or they don't necessarily have to have a negative impact on us. Another example of us wanting to feel a negative emotion is fear. Sometimes we may enjoy the thrill of being scared, to have an adrenaline rush. In episode 117, I talk about the research question, can watching horror movies make us more resilient? Horror movies or scary shows are an example of experiencing a typical unpleasant emotion, but in a safe, unthreatening environment. Back in episode 117, I speak about how some people may enjoy watching horror movies because it is a way to experience an adrenaline rush, an opportunity for morbid curiosity, all in the safe environment of one's home. Some research even suggests that watching horror movies may prepare some individuals to be more resilient in traumatic situations because they've experienced these situations artificially through watching the movies. So they aren't surprised by these tragic situations, but rather approach these situations with logical curiosity as opposed to an emotionally reactive response. So for psychologists to generalize that for us to be happy, we must feel more positive emotions and less negative emotions, but that isn't necessarily accurate. The more accurate statement is that the pursuit of happiness is about feeling emotions that seem right for us. We need to reframe our thinking that happiness is not about feeling just the pleasant emotions, but happiness is about feeling emotions that feel right, 
And for some of us, that might be sadness, fear, excitement, love, or curiosity, depending on the situation and the context. Oishi and Westgate, in the journal Psychological Review in 2021, wrote an incredible review on what it means to pursue happiness and the three different theories or aspects evolved around it. I have to say a special thank you to one of my listeners, Sharam, for sharing this article with me. It might be one of my favorite review articles that I've read in a long time, so thank you for that. In this review, Oshi argues that Aristotle and others believed the pursuit of happiness was about, one, hedonism, or enjoying life's pleasures and having security. So material wealth and financial security contribute to this aspect of a happy life. The second component to the pursuit of happiness has been thought to be eudaimonism, which is to have a life of meaning, to have a life of purpose. Many people fulfill this category by raising a family, having a career with impact, volunteering in the community to positively influence those around us, or being a part of social movements and protests and political change, that we have a positive impact beyond ourselves. In this review article, Oshi proposes a third aspect to the pursuit of happiness, and that is to have a psychologically rich life, meaning a life that includes a variety of experiences, good and bad. So let me ask you, if you had to pick among those three that I just shared, either one, a pleasurable life with security, two, a meaningful life with purpose, or three, a psychologically rich life full of experiences, what would you choose? If you said a pleasurable life with security, you would be in the majority. Across nine different countries, 50 to 70% of people said that they would want this type of life. The next most popular answer was to have a meaningful life. 14 to 39% of people chose that answer. The least popular choice was to have a psychologically rich life full of experience. Only 7 to 17% chose that answer. So let's talk about a bit about this new concept of happiness, to have a psychologically rich life. A psychologically rich life involves taking time to reflect on our experiences, whether they be good or bad, and to learn from them. The opposite would be to mindlessly consume experiences one after the other, or to not have the experiences at all. Psychological richness involves tapping into the hardship and embracing the juxtaposition. It involves living a life of curiosity and experiencing perspective changes. Let me give an analogy. Imagine when you started to walk as a young child that you had the most perfect pair of shoes. They fit just as they needed to. They hugged all the right spots, they supported you, and you could walk in them all day. No pain, no blisters. How great that felt. But imagine if instead, when you started to walk, you had a pair of shoes that did not fit right. A pair that gave you blisters. The shoes had holes in some spots and did not provide support where needed. You could not walk in them. You could not go far. Now let's say you took off that pair of shoes and reflected on why they did not work for you. You learned about yourself and what you needed. Then you created for yourself or happened to find a better pair, perhaps a perfect pair even. This new pair fits just right. They provided support where needed and you could walk in them forever and could go further than before. 
how much more rewarding these new pair of shoes would feel. How grateful, for we know what it feels like to have an ill-fitting pair of shoes. We would have appreciated these shoes, would we have appreciated these shoes if we had them from the start? Maybe not. But because of this time of uncomfortability, because of this juxtaposition, we were able to learn about ourselves, what we needed, what we wanted, and now we can truly appreciate the comfort. This is an analogy that I made for psychological richness as being the core component to the pursuit of happiness, that we can truly appreciate and feel happiness after experiencing contrasting emotions and reflecting upon it. Oshi and others argue that a psychologically rich life is characterized by variety, interestingness, and perspective change. In contrast, a pleasurable life is characterized by comfort, joy, and stability, that we can aim for those with stable relationships, having income, and a positive attitude. The other aspect of a happy life, a meaningful life, is characterized with purpose, significance, and coherence, and this can be achieved with having moral principles and the pursuit of helping others. But how can we aim for psychological richness? Because that's about curiosity and spontaneity and energy. So let's get into that more. The key to adding psychological richness to our life is to experience new things that might result in us changing our perspective. Let me say that again to emphasize it. To add psychological richness to our life, we can experience new things that might result in us changing our perspective. And it can be very simple things. We don't need to necessarily go out and travel the world to have psychological richness. So let me give some examples. In this review article by Oshi, the scientists conducted focus groups to look for examples of psychological richness. And a young student described an example really well. She said she was to attend a a professional wrestling WWE live event. Now she went into this event begrudgingly, thinking that it was going to be cheesy and showy and lame. But when she arrived, she was very pleasantly surprised to learn that the wrestlers contribute a lot to children's charities, that they are very athletic, charismatic, entertaining, and serve as good role models to to children. Instead of having a bad time like she thought she would, she found herself cheering and jumping with excitement at the event, that she felt a range of emotions with the entertainment, such as anger toward the villains, fear with some of the wrestling moves that the wrestlers did, and excitement when some of her favorites won. So she experienced a range of emotions. Her perspective changed. She grew from this experience. This is an example of something that can add to the psychological richness of one's life, to experience something new that we had an assumption about, only to have our mind opened to new possibilities, to new perspectives. I'll give a personal example. I grew up enjoying different styles of music, but I hadn't really experienced heavy metal music. I had the opportunity to attend a metal concert for the first time about five years ago. The main headline band was Under Oath, with other bands like Dance Gavin Dance and Crown the Empire. And I was open to going and excited for the experience, but had the assumption that it would probably be hard to get into, hard to enjoy, maybe it would be too much for me. It turns out, I absolutely loved it. The music was cathartic. It was energizing, it was electrifying, it was very entertaining. And I also learned how heavy metal music has some of the most poetic lyrics out of all the music genres. And I never would have thought that metal or metalcore music 
and their lyrics would be so poetic, intelligent, and powerful. I was very pleasantly surprised. So I experienced a variety of emotions at that concert, and my perspective changed. Another quick example of mine. Before I moved to New York City, many people told me to be careful, that New Yorkers are super competitive, that they're cutthroat, and that it would be a tough environment to survive in. I also had my own personal assumptions that New Yorkers would be dressed really fancy and have these glamorous lives like portrayed in the movies. But when I moved here, I was surprised to realize that the reality was quite different from these assumptions of others and myself. I found that New Yorkers are super friendly to me, and if I have witnessed New Yorkers being rude to someone, it is usually for a specific reason, like someone is blocking the sidewalk and preventing people from getting to work in good time, so they might just be more upfront, which isn't such a bad thing in my mind. I also noted that New Yorkers mostly do not dress very fancy, like I had assumed. In fact, most New Yorkers have to wear sneakers and casual clothing because we have to walk to most places, we have to climb stairs, we have to carry our groceries, laundry, our belongings everywhere. It's hard to do that in heels and really fancy attire. So most people, in fact, wear sneakers everywhere until they get to their destination where they might switch into fancier footwear. It was small things like this that really stuck with me that changed my perspective of the city and of New Yorkers. I moved to this city with assumptions only to have my perspective changed. And so this added to the psychological richness of my life. Can you think of a similar experience in your life where you had assumptions about a city or an experience that you were about to go to? And were you surprised? Were you surprised pleasantly or unpleasantly? So what can we take from these examples that I shared? Well, we can try something that we have not experienced before. Perhaps something that we have assumptions about. We can give it a try and see if our assumptions are correct or not. So we can try a dance class, an art class, read a book of a different genre, go to a concert of a music style you don't like, visit a city that is different from your typical choice, listen to a podcast of something that is different from your usual interests, have a fun debate with someone and argue the opposite side to which you believe, challenge your perspective new experiences. This is one way on how we can add psychological richness to our lives. Now the scientists in this review article studied college students to determine what aspects to life added to their psychological richness. The scientists noted that students who studied abroad reported much greater increases in psychological richness versus students who remained on campus. What specifically in the studying abroad led to the psychological richness? It often was the students participating in artistic activities, excursions around the unfamiliar town, meeting new people with different life experiences. What was impactful about the studying abroad was that the experience was novel, it was challenging, and it was perspective changing. So whether these experiences are big experiences like studying abroad, or small, more common experiences like attending a concert, they can all have an impact. But having these experiences is not necessarily enough to increase psychological richness, as two people can have the same experience but feel very differently about it. One person might look at the experience positively and grow from it, while another person might think back on it negatively and not grow from it. So what is the key difference here? Well, psychologists believe what is important in obtaining psychological richness is to have openness. 
Openness is a part of having curiosity, wanting to learn, being creative, and to have a desire for problem solving. These personality traits help individuals to adjust to new environments and to grow from their experiences. There are other facets to a psychologically rich life. For example, having an open and curious personality is more likely to lead to a person being happy. So if we were closed-minded, then in these new experiences, we may never be open enough to having a perspective change. This seems to be particularly true in challenging events or hardships. Being open and curious are components of wisdom as well. So the components of a happy life, like a lifetime of pleasure, can give rise to personal satisfaction. And a lifetime of having a meaningful life can have societal contribution. But a lifetime of psychologically rich experiences should give rise to wisdom. In this review article, Oshi interviewed over 2,000 people and asked them about their greatest regrets in life. Can you think of a regret that you might have in your life? Now, most people answered their greatest regrets were about missed educational, career, and relationship opportunities, and mistakes concerning their education, career, family, and romantic relationships. But if you could undo that regret, do you think your life would have been happier? When around 2,000 people were asked this, 28% said that they believed their lives would have been psychologically richer if they undid their greatest regret. What this means is that the grand majority, 72% of people believe that their greatest regret in life might have added to the richness of their life, that the mistake or hardship may have added to their life experience to the juxtaposition, that the regret added to their ability to be happy. So let's talk a bit about growing from experiences, particularly negative life experiences. Difficult events in our life are inevitable. All of us will go through tragedy, hardship, and challenges. Psychological richness involves not only valuing the positive events in our life, but also valuing the hardships. Two people can experience the same tragedy, but respond to the event very differently. For these negative experiences to contribute to our psychological richness, it requires our ability to remember them, to actively reflect upon them, and to learn from and integrate these experiences into our life. So the second component to psychological richness after being open to new experiences is reflection. Beattie and the journal Human Brain Mapping in 2015 conducted a brain imaging study to understand the neurobiology of openness as a personality trait. They more specifically defined openness as a tendency to engage in imaginative, creative, and abstract cognitive processes. In their study, they recruited 68 young adults and had them fill out the openness intellect component of the Big Five Aspects Scale questionnaire to quantify how open every participant was. For example, how would you respond to the following questions on a scale from very inaccurate to very accurate about yourself? For example, I like to daydream. I like to find a deeper meaning in things. I enjoy hearing new ideas. I enjoy philosophical discussions. If you answer yes, this is very accurate or accurate to describe me, then you may tend toward being more open. 
So the scientist had 68 people fill out an expansive questionnaire to score and quantify their level of openness. Then the participants underwent functional magnetic resonance imaging of their brain while at rest. The scientist's goal was to understand the connectivity of different brain regions in the participants and to compare this to their level of openness. The scientist noted more global efficiency in the default network of the brain with higher scores of openness. So what does that mean? Well, the default network of the brain consists of multiple brain regions that are functional and connected when we are at rest and not engaging in a task. It is believed that the default network of our brain is active when we meditate, when we daydream, when we reflect on events or think about the future. So the results of this study suggest that people who are more open tend to have more connected and active default networks in their brain, which very likely corresponds to being more reflective, to having more creative insight. So there is a neurobiological link between openness, experience, reflection, and insight. So that is a wrap, my people scientist army. The pursuit of happiness may not be just about feeling the good emotions, but feeling the right emotions for you at the time. And this can include the unpleasant emotions. This could be feeling the negative emotions that are cathartic and therapeutic for an appropriate event or in a safe setting like watching a scary movie in our home. The key to happiness might just be juxtaposition and contrast. Philosophers such as Aristotle and many psychologists have thought that the pursuit of a happy life was about pleasure, security, and to have meaning, meaning and purpose to one's life. But another aspect to a happy life could be psychological richness. This includes being open to new experiences, having our perspectives changed, and to reflect on these experiences, choosing to learn from them, to be enriched by them, even the bad and challenging ones. To look at them as opportunities of contrast. For example, would we ever appreciate those perfectly fitting pair of shoes if we never walked around barefoot or with poorly fitting painful shoes? learning about ourselves and what we need. So how can we enhance the psychological richness of our lives? Well, being open to new experiences, listening to new ideas, trying new events, and instead of mindlessly consuming these new experiences, take time afterward to reflect upon them. We can think about what we liked most, what surprised us, and what we did not like. We can choose to learn about ourselves. Now, this can come from small situations like reading a book we wouldn't have normally picked out, going to a concert of a music genre that we wouldn't typically like, having a fun debate where we argue the side we don't agree with. We can also add psychological richness with bigger events, such as studying abroad, making friends with people from other countries, joining a sports team we wouldn't normally join, traveling to new cities to see how others live their daily life. Now, experiencing these things alone isn't enough to add psychological richness to one's life. Two people can have the same experience but take from it very different things. Psychologists suggest that having an open mind and taking time to reflect afterward are key components to psychological richness. Scientists note that individuals with more open personalities tend to have more connected and active default brain networks. And this suggests that their brain may be more active at rest, while daydreaming, thinking up new ideas, reflecting on the past, and thinking about the future. So the pursuit of happiness may not just be about pleasure, security, and having purpose, 
but the final key may be about embracing emotions and situations, good and bad. The key might just be juxtaposition. So I hope that this episode was interesting for all of you. This honestly might be one of my favorites. Let's say that this episode added to my psychological richness by changing my perspective on the pursuit of happiness. And I hope that this episode did the same for you. If you did enjoy the episode, please leave a thumbs up, a review, a comment, or tell a friend about the show so that I know what you think of the episode. Otherwise, I'm just putting this episode out into the abyss and hoping that you enjoyed it. If you'd like to buy me a coffee to say thank you for the show, you can do so via the links in the description box to this episode. I hope that you all have an awesome two weeks, and I look forward to meeting you all back here for episode 128 in two weeks' time. Bye for now. I am a scientist simply sharing scientific evidence. Some of the clinical interventions I discuss are not appropriate for everyone. Before making any changes to your diet or lifestyle, please do consult the advice of your physician or dietitian. My opinions expressed here do not necessarily reflect those of Mount Sinai Hospital and its affiliates. Thank you.